If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, today's episode, we are going to be having a conversation with Erica Barnhart. And we're going to be talking about fixing those common communication mistakes that suck up so much of our organization's time, energy, and money. Erica is a communication expert, a speaker, an author, a podcaster, and a university professor. She is on a mission to change the world one word at a time. She is founder and CEO of Claxon Communication, a company that teaches high-performing, purpose-centered clients how to communicate with clarity and confidence. And here's why she does that. She does it so they can increase their awareness and increase their impact. Often that means increasing the revenue too. Now, her company serves for-profits and non-profits, and I'd be willing to bet you recognize the names of some of the non-profits she has served. That includes the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Group Health Foundation. Additionally, Eric has authored two books, one which is called Pitchfalls, Why Bad Pitches Happen to Good People. And the other is called Recharge, Energize Your Employees, One Word at a Time. Hey, Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dolph. Nice to be here. It is good to have you here, Erica. And when I was preparing for our conversation, I noticed that you used the phrase one word at a time a good little bit and the phrase that words matter. Why? Well, we've heard that. I mean, I'm sure listeners are like, not unique, Erica, words matter, heard it before. But what is overlooked often is that part of why words matter and maybe how they matter is because they actually are matter. And so in like anything else in our universe, they actually words abide by the same universal laws of physics and thermodynamics. This means that they have their own energy. So every single word has its own energy. And so one way to increase awareness, increase impact, you know, have healthier, more productive, more joyful employees and feel more confident and clear as a leader is to become more attentive to the energy of the words that you are using, both in terms of the words themselves. And then, of course, there's an energetic overlay with like 
pacing and tone of voice and sort of what's referred to as paralanguage. So when you can combine those two pieces, then you can get the most out of the words and make them matter even more. And that's also the one word at a time piece is both actionable. It's also just practical. We all go through about 15,000 words a day. We won't pay attention to the vast majority of them. They're called function words and all the kind of, you know, our brains can't process that many things. So our brain is waiting for the thing that it needs to pay attention to. And so that's why when I work with clients, I really focus on, you know, if we're looking at a mission statement, for instance, breaking it down by part of speech so that we get the right energy per word before you put them all together, actually. When you say breaking it down by the part of speech, can we go into that? Yeah, I have a verb first approach, especially to mission statements. Vision is a bit different. Vision tends to be more about nouns. So it really depends a bit on the organization, but I would say for your mission, since your mission is what you do and how you do it, your purpose is why you exist as an organization. And then your vision is where you're going and why. And then of course, all of this is the foundation is the values, right? So regardless of where you're showing up, you're always living into your values. So that's why with the the mission statement, it's your what and your how. And so verbs, the main verb, you really want it to represent the change that you're committed to creating in the world. So that's why we start there. And then we say, okay, what's next? What's next? And not, you know, not to the exclusion of the nouns, you know, it is the English language, subject, verb, object. But because we're so noun heavy as a language, I worry much less about the nouns. It's the verbs that always get overlooked. So that's why we start with the verb. Also, verbs have quite a bit of energy because they're action words. Yeah, we literally break it down by part of speech and then we reconstruct. So let's talk about the energy of some of these verbs. What are some of your favorite verbs and what energy do you think about that's associated with them? Okay, you're not going to like my response. (laughs) I guess my response is going to be, it depends. I'm okay with that. I was kind of expecting that. I kind of feel like the energy that it gives off is probably situational. The verbs you like is probably situational. Yeah, and it's not. And part of it is it doesn't matter what verbs I like. I am there as a coach. I'm there sort of a linguistic Sherpa guiding my clients to what feels energetically and content-wise that it reflects the authentic nature of the work that they are doing. And then also you have to be in brand personality. So, you know, if you're a sort of a young, charismatic, forward-looking organization, that's going to be a different energy. I think of like Girls Inc. as an example of that. That's a very different energy than, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we always have to think about brand personality. And that really, to a great extent, is going to form tone. And then from there, then you can start lining things up. So I hate to get too far in the weeds, but I'm going to ask, how is tone different from energy? Oh, that's a, I love that question, Dolph. You know, it's a piece, I think tone is a piece of the energy, right? So you have the word itself, which is, you know, words fundamentally are just signs. So there's the sign, there's a signifier. And then there's a signified, like, we have to give words meaning. And that's why you have to learn a language, right? So I think tone is one way to get to the energy that you want. And this is why actually written messaging at the organizational level is actually the trickiest because you're stripped, all of that is stripped, right? So you actually have a much larger communication toolbox when it's verbal. So when it's spoken, it's a much larger toolbox. Now, you said that all of that is stripped when it's written. So... How do you go about those really important written communications, whether we're talking about your mission statement or a memo to 
team members or, you know, a fundraising letter? It's always the same. I'm always going to work the Klaxon method, right? So we start with, which is what, who, how, grounded in the why. So what does success look like? You know, what results are you looking to achieve? And then going on to who, who's the audience or the listener? You know, again, this is contextual, but who is the audience, generally speaking? And then how are you going to communicate with them? So, and the reason that that sequencing is so important is because oftentimes we go right to the how. So if you think about the how is like both the the words, but where are we going to put them? So, you know, are we like back in the day, it was, should we be on Twitter? Now it's like, what about TikTok? So it's like that changes over time, but that's a how. And you really can't make strategic choices unless you're very clear on your audience and what you're trying to achieve. So oftentimes we skip to the how, I think partially because it's concrete, but also we're pressed for time. And that feels right. Like the, we have to figure it out. So I totally get that and I honor it. And this, the process doesn't have to take up a ton of time. Sometimes it does, but it keeps you grounded and on the same page with your peers, with your colleagues. And over time, it is these smaller choices that over time accumulate into whether or not you're gonna be successful as a nonprofit. So the cumulative effect matters, which is why each time I call it resetting the table, we're going to reset the table. What does success look like? Who's the audience? Okay, given that, how are we going to communicate with them? And so how can people and organizations get really concrete about the results that they think success looks like? I would hope that organizations know what success looks like for them. Now, having said that, I've been doing this long enough and work with enough organizations, and I know that that's not always true. And so again, that is part of why I start there and I'm pretty strict about it. So if you're not clear on that, it is not a good investment of time and energy and money to really figure out the rest of it. The investment that needs to be made is getting that clarity of what success looks like for your organization. So this might come from a strategic plan, you know, it might come from a fundraising plan, but communication is a means to an end. So if you're not clear on what the end is, you really can't figure out the best, highest ROI path forward. So where I'm going to push back a little bit is I kind of feel like it's actually not that one size fits all, you know, like what's your fundraising plan or what's your strategic plan? I mean, so if I'm putting together, I don't know, a memo to team members, you know, and I need to deliver some news that not everyone's going to love, maybe health insurance is changing. You know, what success looks like for me there isn't really dictated by the strategic plan. Yeah, 100%. I think of that as leadership communication. So we've been talking more about organizational communication, but I do a lot of individual coaching with leaders. So executive communication coaching. So you're a hundred percent correct that that is a different, you're not going to pull that from your strategic plan. And yet the method still holds, right? So with that, what do I need to communicate and what do I need to communicate and how how do I want people to feel? And this is something I work on a lot with my coaching clients is, How do people need to feel in order to actually be open to hearing the message? So we'll stick with your example because it's such a salient one is if there's changes to health insurance, that is about psychological safety. You know, it's funny when you were speaking, I remember thinking, yeah, safe. I want people to feel safe. Yeah. Safe. I want them to feel safe. I want them to really get, like, get in that, like, okay, because the initial response is maybe... What does this mean for me? What does it mean for my family? What does it mean for the things that I care about in this world? And this doesn't need to be, importantly, so oftentimes the pushback I get is like, well, but people are pressed for time. They're not going to read a bunch of stuff. Absolutely. But you can, once you get that attentiveness and that intention 
This is where you can go back to the energy of the words and use that to your advantage. You can create a sense of safety in one sentence. So it's not necessarily about more. It's about how are you going to sequence things? What needs to come first? And then what can follow? I'll just have to jump in because I agree with you. I think that memo, most people won't read it. But the two or three or four or five people who do are the people who need that sense of, okay, I'm going to be okay. You know, my prescriptions will still be covered. I'll still have my doctor or whatever it is. So I hear you on that. That like, just because most people aren't going to read it, the people who do it really matters too. Yeah. The method holds regardless of context, but you got to start with what success looks like. Yeah. So then can we talk a little bit about who is my audience? I think sometimes that's easy. Like if I'm writing that memo, you know, the audience pretty easy. Okay. It's team members who are on our health insurance plan. That's an easy one for me to, and I can probably picture the team members, unless we're a thousand person organization, I can probably picture them in my head. But what about, for example, that fundraising email or the advocacy letter that's going to go out to, you know, a thousand people? So this is the trickiest. External communication is trickier in terms of audience. So just want to, for the reasons you just stated. So 100% on that, because internal audiences are more of a known quantity. Now, the larger the organization, the more complex it is. So, and still, you actually have more information for the most part. When it gets to external, you are hypothesizing more. So you could certainly do some research to really figure out, you know, who your people are, where they are. You know, what types of things do they read? All of that. You build a persona. You can go there, but oftentimes you don't have the luxury of doing that. And so the way to address that is to get very real and rigorous about for whom am I optimizing this communication? So if we stick with fundraising, right? So we would know what a success look like. So out of the gate, you're going to, is it acquisition or is it retention? This is huge differentiator, right? Because they're at a different place in terms of their engagement with the organization. So that's why, again, you start with what a success looks like. So then if you know that it's a retention email, similar sort of internal marketing, you know a fair amount about your current donor base. And if you don't, then it's worth it to spend some time figuring that out. So you have that advantage and really like thinking about, okay, well, this is like, is it a year end appeal versus a, you know, a day of giving appeal? You know, where is it in the cycle type thing? So you think, and then what's on their hearts and minds? What is really, truly on their hearts and minds? And it's oftentimes not your organization. And so sort of aligning the narrative with where they're at becomes really, really critical. So if you think about, this is exactly why, like when Mother's Day comes along or Valentine's Day or, you know, any of these holidays, right? Why you see an uptick (laughs) in communications that are framed, you know, with that in mind. And that is because it's kind of, you know, it's on people's minds already. So you're just trying to like, it's like a access issue. So you can align that way. The less you know about your audience, the trickier it is. But I, in general, will advocate for like, you can always think of one person who is representative of who you want it to land for and you need it to land for. And so go really deep on that person, really get real about what's on their heart and mind and then write it for them. Can we go a little bit deeper about what's on their heart and mind? And so, for example, I know you said when it's close to Mother's Day, obviously you see that more. When it's close to Valentine's Day or the holidays, you see that more. So I could see that. But you know, what about just your, as an example, your generic fundraising appeal or campaign that goes out in September, October, November, and December? Like, how do you go deep on what's on someone's heart and mind in the autumn? Well, I would say there's always things happening in the world that are happening. 
<laughs> so it's another way to tie it is to really look around. And if you're a local organization, what's happening locally? You know, I'm based out of Seattle. So we have a huge issue with homelessness. That's, I would look at the perennial issues and does your mission, does your purpose align in some way with that? So are there like, again, just natural ways to align with what's happening? So it doesn't need to be seasonal per se. It needs to be significant in the moment. Got it. The other thing I want to emphasize, and I wanted us to go back a little bit ago, you mentioned, and I think it's really important that we do talk about this. You said, yeah, if you're talking acquisition, you know, new donors, that's really different from retention, current donors. And I think so often, you know, so many, especially smaller nonprofits that have limited development staff or no development staff take the same letter and, you know, maybe rework the first paragraph for their current donors and, you know, then have a different one. But all that's different is the first paragraph for their acquisition. I will admit when I see that happen, I get a little sad. <laughs> why do you get sad? Honestly, because organizations are leaving money on the table. That's why. It's a fair question, but it's because, you know, organizations are leaving money on the table. Like, yes, it's getting those asks out is better than nothing, but the ask that's not really tailored. And yes, in the first paragraph, you can recognize, okay, you've been a donor for, and your CRM can fill in six years. So yes, you do that. But to not really talk to the person like they're a donor throughout the letter, as opposed to the way you would speak to someone who you're asking to join you. Yeah. Whenever I'm, I'm thinking about and talking about acquisition, I'm always attentive to pronouns. So this is a big thing that I notice, and it's specifically the we and the our. And this is why if you only change the first paragraph, like I agree with you about leaving money on the table, because then if it's for a current donor, we and our resonates because they're already part of the tribe. They already said yes. If I'm not sure it actually makes me feel less part of it because I'm not part of you yet. And now I feel awkward and blah, 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 blah. I mean, when you are a smaller organization, time is probably your scarcest resource on the receiving end. Attention is the scarcest resource. That's what we're up against. So I can get behind using the same story, repurposing, definitely. But I think you have to look at the whole letter. So core can be this one story, how you frame that story the first paragraph, how you frame the story, how you close what's in the PS, all kind of needs to be tailored. So is that part of the how? How can I most effectively communicate? Good job, Dolph. Yes. There you go. What can I say? I got a little cheat <laughs> sheet up star. here in front of me. <laughs> yeah. I also imagine, and you've sort of alluded to this, the how is also actually, you know, physically, how are you going to do it? Is it going to be, I think, at least I'm assuming that's all the other part of the how, like, is it going to be a paper letter? Is it going to be an email? Is it going to be a phone call? How are you going to do this? Like, you know, the memo example I gave. So let's say insurance is changing. Maybe it's best, you know, first in like an all hands meeting to kind of mention it and say, hey, there's also going to be a memo that goes out later today. Maybe that's a better how than just, hey, blind memo for management saying your insurance is changing. Yeah, that can be jarring. And when it's something that sensitive, you really have to be thinking about a multi-pronged approach. You know, relying on one memo for something that high stakes is risky. It's very, very risky. And well, generally, you're going to get some backlash either in the nearer or longer term. And, you know, I work a lot with my executive clients with high stakes moments. So right now we have a lot of transition a lot of transition, both programmatically, but also in terms of people coming and going and promotions and all the rest of that. And it's been going on for so long 
for many organizations, there's this fatigue. And so the overlays in terms of, again, the psychological aspects of it really have to come into play. We no longer live in a world where you can be like, it's going to be fine. Everybody will read the memo. <laughs> we have too many communication channels. And I will also say it is tempting. Like if you're somebody who likes to write a memo, your default setting is going to be, I'm going to write a memo. So this is why the who matters so much. Because if the primary, I'm going to make this up, but like if the primary way in which your organization now communicates is on Slack, well, the memo might not even get read. So this is why the sequencing of it, like, where are they really going to notice it first? And that can be like sort of similar to a all hands. Hey, heads up. There's going to be some changes. We got you. Okay. We got you. But we just want to give you a heads up. This is coming. And you can do that, you know, sort of the heads up. And then you're going to send out something more sensitive. And then, and then, and then. But that is, you know, it's called projecting, right? Like, I like a memo or I like a phone conversation or so that's why the who part of the Plaxon method is so important. And as a leader, you really have to gain fluency in different different formats of communication. So we've talked about Slack. We've talked about meetings, memos. Obviously, I kind of feel like email goes along with memos. Other forms of communication that leaders should be becoming fluent in? Well, I think leaders have to figure out the role of AI. I would agree, by the way. Like, I've been experimenting with AI for about six or seven months now. I would agree 100%. It is coming. It is no longer like a if, if it comes. It's like it is here and it's powerful. And you have to learn how to use it effectively. And, you know, I've been doing some, a lot of experimentation with it, both for clients, but also in terms of teaching. So if this is here, you know, I teach at the Evans School, the University of Washington, the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. And so we're a policy and leadership school. <laughs> um, you know, and our students, and increasingly, like I have two kids in high school, like they know what this is. They are becoming fluent. So we kind of have to get on board. And rightfully so, it can get a little spooky, what is possible. And so, you know, getting even more fluent is, I would say, the path towards leveraging it. I think there's massive potential for smaller organizations. And I'm seeing more and more, you know, good counsel come out about how to leverage it. So that makes me really excited. You need to make sure that you're using it, of course, in a way that aligns with your organizational values. Of course. And figure out what that looks like and take full advantage of it. And I also have to say, no one should rely on AI for the final draft. It's like, it can give us some great ideas. In fact, I'll share with you some ways I've actually used AI recently. I'll have AI debate with me. Oh yeah, that's fun, huh? Yeah, because I'll say, okay, I want to present the following. Debate with me. And it will debate with me. And I'm like, oh yeah, I need to think about that. Oh yeah, I need to account for this. I need to account for that. I've also, by the way, used it when I'm thinking about my audiences, whether it's my friends who listen to the podcast or people that come to webinars. And so like, if I'm planning a webinar, I might put in, for example, to chat GPT, hey, I'm going to be hosting a webinar. You know, here's what it's going to be about. And I think the people who are likely to want to attend it are going to be concerned about the following four things. What am I missing? And it will actually generate other things that I might be missing. And then I get to weigh and go, eh, you know, does that rise to the level? Do I feel like I have enough expertise to talk about? You know what I mean? Like, then I get to think through all that. But yeah, like, I mean, I will say, like, in terms of communicating, AI for me has been a real game changer. Not always, sometimes it has saved me time, but not always saving me time, but certainly helping my communications be stronger. I really appreciate that last point because I do feel like a lot of the narrative is around time savings and not to say that can't be true, but the making your communication more successful 
is the big value add. One of the other things that I really like to have AI help with is writing subject lines for e-blasts and stuff like that. You got to nail a subject line. And so, so you generate, you know, I'm going to send out this email about blah, 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 generate 20 possible subject lines. And then you can A-B test too, you know, any, pretty much any email service provider is going to let you play a little bit and then figure out which one works best with your audience and then send that to the rest. But yeah, send the best to the rest. And I'll just, I, I've done some of that too, where I literally like copy and paste the email anonymized because obviously everything we put in AI is not confidential. So I anonymize it. Let me be clear. No client names. You know, if you're a human service agency, no client names. If you're a fundraiser, no donor's name, nothing like that. So I anonymize it. But I've actually taken like the entire body of an email and then we'll say, draft 20 subject lines that will increase the likelihood that this email is opened. And if I know who my audience is, and you know, if it's something like, you know, your email newsletter, you kind of do know who your audience is. I'll also give it a description of my audience. No, it's powerful. And it's, I think it's one of those moments of holding the power of it in equal measure with your values and your goals and, and all of these things. And I will say, I mean, I think one of the things that will help keep it in check and when I say it, what I mean is help keep our use of AI in alignment with our values is, you know, the uh, U.S. Patent and Trade Office came out about two or three months ago and pretty much said anything that you make with AI is not protected by copyright. So if you want to own it, you can't use AI for it. Yeah, I want to just connect a dot. I'm pretty sure your listeners will connect this dot. But back to the example that we were talking about with the fundraising appeal and only changing the certain things. I think that there is a role for AI, whatever platform you choose, to generate the first initial draft very quickly so that you can then take it and tailor it for different audiences. It can generate a pretty fantastic first draft, and that is as far as you should expect it to get you <laughs> in terms of just drafting. I've also taken a draft of like a letter or email that I've written and put it into AI, tell it what my goal is. Like, you know, if that's a contribution, if that's an open, whatever it is, like, you know, tell it what my goal is, if that's a registration for something, and also tell it what my target audience is. And then say, how can I make this more powerful? It will actually give me ideas, you know, so we'll say like, oh, in this paragraph, you know, you're using some language here that's weak. It will actually say that. It's really kind of amazing. I have not asked it to do that. I love that. I do think the work world as we know it will be changed by AI. And I think those of us that do not get on the bus in about two years are going to have a much steeper learning curve because the bus is going to be going at 60 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, just even the past six months, three months, and there is now talk about like, is there any way to slow the pace? The answer, of course, is basically no. So I think the sooner you get, I think two years, if you're joining the stream two years from now, that stream is going to just whisk you away uncomfortably. <laughs> I agree. I also think one of the new jobs of the future is the AI whisperer. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's already the here. Yeah. It's like, you know, the person who's like, oh, yeah, I just have an incredible ability to create the prompts that will get you close to what you want. You're going to finish it, but it'll get you close to it. Yeah. Yep. Well, Erica, I'll be frank and say I could talk for another 30 minutes on AI. I actually could because I've been nerding out about it a lot over the last six or seven months. And by the way, friends, this is airing in September, but we were recording it in May. So, you know, we're planners at Successful Nonprofit. So when I say I've been nerding out for the last six or seven months, I mean since like, you know, autumn, fall of 2022. I've been like, oh my gosh, I need to know more about AI. 
but I want to make sure that we get the chance to ask you the off the map question. So this is not uncommon. It's actually not that far off the map. It's probably, you know, if we turn a couple pages, it might actually be the same map. But many people want to write a book. And I know you've written two, both of them again, real quick, Pitchfalls, Why Bad Pitches Happen to Good People, and Recharge, Energize Your Employees One Word at a Time. So you have written two books. And so obviously, they need to know the what, the who, and the how before they write the book. So I'm going to take that away as a possible answer. What advice do you have for an aspiring author who wants to get a book out? (laughs) So my books tend to be short. You know, I have not written like a textbook or a long thing. And the reason that they are is directly related to what I'm going to say is, you know, I tend to write books in a way that I would like to read them. So I know a thing or two about my target audience and know that this will be in alignment. But I would say, you know, oftentimes where I hear other authors get stuck is trying to write a book that isn't theirs, that really truly isn't like authentic to who they are. And that's tough. You're just going to get stalled out time and time and time again. So I would say, write the book that you want to read, write the book that you want to (laughs) write and just like really go all in with it because even short books, like it is a labor of love. I especially like the write the book you want to read. About eight years ago, I had a book come out and what I was not expecting is the number of times I was going to have to read it before it was published. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So definitely, it's funny when you said that, I'm like, oh yeah, write the book you want to read because you're going to read it more times than any other book you've ever read. Again and again and again. And the other thing is, at least for mine, I wrote books in a moment where I really saw people struggling. So I wrote Pitchfalls probably about eight years ago now. I don't even know exactly know when it first came out. And at the time I was working with a lot of organizations doing trainings on elevator pitches and pitching. And so the pitchfalls, the physical, it's very small, it's a pocketbook, right? And I picked that format on purpose so that folks could like have a little totem almost that they could hold to like get them over some of the common hurdles and also sort of wipe away this like, I don't have time. You can read this book in very, very, very short order. So I was just thinking of the common barriers that I was seeing, and I tried to figure out a format. And also the tone is very conversational. So that was what I was you know, facing when I released Pitchfalls. I released Recharge in 2022. And that was because you know I was just working with so many clients around team communication and burnout was such a huge piece of what people were facing. And so I wanted to give like a very actionable bite-sized approach that you could take, which is that one word at a time, uh, you know, as one pebble in the pond of trying to get folks over burnout. So at least for me, I have to, it has to be a moment where I'm like, wow, people are really struggling with this. And I have some unique perspective to offer. That is incredibly helpful. Thank you. And Eric, I'm glad that you came on. And whenever we reach this point in the show, I want to make sure that our friends who are listening know how they can find out more about your work. And so, friends, you can go to klaxon-communication.com. There's a handful of things I want you to check out while you're there. Make sure you click on the resources tab. Check out their Communicate for Good quiz. And they also have, I don't know if I would refer to it as a cloud-based app or an app, but they also have Wordifier, which you should also definitely check out. If you're currently finding AI cool, you might find Wordifier really cool as well. And then also while you're at klaxon-communication.com, make sure you click on the podcast tab and learn more about Erica's podcast, Communicate for Good. Hey, Erica, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for having me, Dolph. I appreciate it. I really do.
Nice to have time with you and your listeners. All right, friends, don't forget, you can also go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and you can get the URL that we just mentioned, klaxon-communication.com. Also, while you were there, there are two other episodes that I think would be probably very helpful for you if you like today's episode. The first is episode 198 with Peter Chattel, Tools to Fire Up Your Productivity. And the second is episode 285, Meetings That Matter with Marie Gress. That, my friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And you know, I never like saying this, but the lawyers make me do it. Every single time they make me do a disclaimer. And lately, you know, friends, I've just been putting the disclaimer in ChatGPT and say, give me something interesting. So this apparently is ChatGPT's game show disclaimer. So here it is. It's time to play my favorite game. What am I not? Well, I'm certainly not an accountant. I'm not an attorney. And guess what prize you might get? Absolutely nothing, because this is not really a game show. You will not get a trip to Hawaii. You will not get a new washer and dryer or anything else, because this is really not a game show. But if you rely on this podcast for legal, tax, or accounting advice, let me tell you what you might get. You might get fines because you're not doing things exactly the way you should be. You're not relying on professional advice. You might get in even more trouble than that. So if what you need is tax, legal, or accounting advice, please, please find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and get the advice that you need.